Welcome listeners, but take heed. We will say whatever we need to share our knowledge, thoughts, and joy, and even things that do annoy. So join us now, but be aware. We have a tendency to swear. We'll dial it back a little bit. But frankly, we don't give a shit. Welcome to Just Keep Rolling, a Harry Potter book movie compare and contrast podcast. I'm the gallant Gryffindor, Ellen. And I'm the sexy Slytherin, Katie. I'm not actually describing myself as sexy. Our support badger, Carly, gave me that alliteration. We have our Order of Merlin first class through fourth class listening in through our Discord channel as we record this episode. Yeah, but we're cutting them off before we get to the trivia question. Yep. Listening in is a patron perk, but cheating on the trivia question is not. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in any extra perks, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash justkeeprolling. In the meantime, let's just keep rolling right into our rolling rehash. Last week, we discussed Chapter 14, Snape's Grudge, and its corresponding film scenes. Trolls make excellent guards as long as they're domesticated. Ron gets a taste of the spotlight, but spiders try to make him dance through the night. Gran's Howler gives everyone sympathy for the Neville. Hagrid's furry suit is not strong enough to save Buckbeak. Draco gets mud in his eye. Harry catches a whiff of the Hogwarts sass leak anytime the rules don't apply to him, which is always. Snape gets owned by a spare bit of parchment. And Lupin comes to Harry's rescue only to deliver his own knockout guilt trip. During episode 53, Sympathy for the Neville, our Potter pondering was, what are your thoughts about how the Marauder map works? Book compared to movie... The fact that Lupin saw Pettigrew in the book, but apparently Fred, George, and Harry never did, etc. We had some great input on this one. Brittany said that from what she always understood about the map is that only marauders could see marauders as animagus, or if you knew what they transformed to. Hence why Fred, George, and Harry couldn't see Wormtail, but Snape could see Lupin since he wasn't in werewolf form and he knew what he was. She also really loved how the map looked in the movie. Nicole said that until Prisoner of Azkaban, she doesn't recall anyone bringing up Peter Pettigrew. The incident with Sirius sounded gruesome, and it bothered adults to talk about it, so she doubts they would ever have mentioned it around their kids. She thinks they may have seen the name before, and since it was not a teacher or Filch and Norris, they never paid a bit of attention to it. Jackson said that he always liked the visual of the map in the movie. The moving footprints added a nice touch. He would have loved to see the full list of insults the map said to Snape. He also thinks the whole thing with Wormtail is super confusing, but that maybe the map just has some unknown powers when it comes to revealing the Marauders. Michael said the books are always better for the background info, but the movie was poor on a lot of points. Quincy thinks the visual of the map was beautiful in the movies, but the logic of it in the books was supreme. Dave said that he heard someone say that maybe the viewer of the map could only see people that they knew slash knew of on the map. The school had hundreds of students in it, but they all didn't show up on the map every time it was opened. Harry only saw Pettigrew after he was told about him. He also posed a side question. Did Crookshanks and Hedwig show up on the map? I know Mrs. Norris showed up on the map, but since she was a filch fetcher... It's entirely possible that they specifically enchanted the map to include her, but then wouldn't have bothered with other people's animals. Carly doesn't buy the whole you-have-to-know-the-person-to-be-able-to-see-them fan theory. She thinks that was an oversight on JK's part. She loves the whole thing about the Marauders, and really her only beef with the Prisoner of Azkaban movie is that they pretty much leave that whole piece out. 
Max got fancy. Shocker. <laughs> he wrote, So here are my thoughts on the scenes the camera caught. The map was made by the Marauders, that much is clear, although the reasoning behind such a thing is quite queer. We see Ratty Peter crawling left, right, and middle, yet Fred and George must surely have seen this strange riddle. Remus seizes his stained paper friend, but he doesn't bring scabbers to a sticky, squeaky end. An odd message to send, although this correlates concisely with Quran's curiously confusing trend. That is pretty impressive, Max. Yeah, pretty impressive that I read it, too. That is pretty impressive, Katie. <laughs> Thank you. Nicely done, Max. Nicely done, Katie. <laughs> Thank you. Our trivia question last week was, what is Professor Flitwick teaching in charms class when Hermione forgets to go? He was teaching them about the cheering charms. Congratulations goes to Dave Garza. Could he be starting a new streak? Well, since we now release episodes at our new earlier time, 7 Eastern Standard Time, each Thursday, who knows? He might have some extra competition to contend with. I'm hoping we start to see some new people winning. I've got stickers to send out. So many stickers. We can't wait to see who wins next week, though. For now, let's just keep rolling into Chapter 15, the Quidditch Final, and the not-so-corresponding film scenes. Chapter 15, the Quidditch Final. Picking up where we left off, Hermione shares the tear-stained note from Hagrid with Harry and Ron that says Buckbeak can come back to Hogwarts, the execution date has not been set, and that Hagrid is thankful for the help. Harry is upset and says that Buckbeak isn't dangerous, and Hermione tells him that Lucius Malfoy frightened the committee into sentencing him. Hermione is not hopeful for a different outcome from an appeal, but Ron says he will help and it will be different. This offer breaks the long-standing tension between the two, with Hermione crying and awkwardly hugging Ron, apologizing for Scabbers, and Ron dismissing Scabbers as old and useless. Ron, Hermione, and Harry are unable to visit Hagrid at his cabin, and their first chance to talk to him about the verdict is during Care of Magical Creatures class. Hagrid seems numb and blames himself for the outcome before saying that Lucius Malfoy has the committee in his pocket and that an appeal would be useless, and he's going to try and make sure the rest of Buckbeak's life is happy. Hagrid returns to his cabin crying, and Ron, Hermione, and Harry continue back to the castle where they run into Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle, who are mocking Hagrid. Before Harry and Ron can get to Draco, Hermione reaches him and smacks him across the face, leaving Malfoy and the other four boys stunned. Ron tries to restrain a furious Hermione, who is verbally berating the three Slytherins, and when she pulls out her wand, Draco, Crab, and Goyle make their escape to the passageway to the dungeons. Hermione tells Harry that he'd better beat Draco in the Quidditch final because she couldn't stand it if Slytherin won, and a stunned Ron tells them they're due in charms. When the three reach Professor Flitwick's room late, they find they will be learning cheering charms, but when Ron turns around, Hermione has disappeared. The cheering charms leave the boys with grins on their faces after the class that Hermione did not turn up for at all. By the end of lunch, which Hermione also missed, the cheering charms have begun to wear off and Harry and Ron start to get worried. The two make their way back to Gryffindor Tower, wondering if Draco has done something to her, but when they enter the common room, they find Hermione fast asleep with her head in her arithmetic book. When Harry wakes up, she flies into a panic about which lesson they have next, and Harry tells her it's divination in 20 minutes, but asks why she wasn't in charms. Hermione is upset and says she forgot to go to charms, and Harry asks how she forgot when she was with them all the way to the classroom. 
She says she lost track of things thinking about Malfoy, and Ron tells her she must be cracking up trying to do too much. Hermione says she isn't and goes to see Professor Flitwick and meets the boys at Divination, where they make their way into the classroom and sit at a table set with a mist-filled crystal ball. Professor Trelawney tells the class that the fates have told her their exams will concern the crystal ball, and she wants to ensure they have sufficient practice and explains that crystal gazing is a refined art. After staring at the crystal balls for a quarter of an hour, Hermione declares it to be a waste of time, and Ron makes a joke about seeing that it will be a foggy night, causing Harry and Hermione to both laugh loudly. Professor Trelawney approaches the table where they are seated, and Harry is sure he knows what's coming. When she gazes into their crystal ball, she tells them something is stalking ever close to Harry, and before she can finish the word grim, Hermione loudly exclaims, Not that ridiculous grim again. Professor Trelawney is angry and proceeds to tell Hermione that she knew from the start that Hermione did not have what's required for divination, and that her mind is hopelessly mundane. Hermione gets up, says that she gives up, and storms out of the classroom. After the class settles down, Lavender says that Professor Trelawney had predicted that around Easter, a student would leave them forever. Harry leaves the class worrying about the Grimm again. The third years spend their Easter holidays studying for exams, and Ron has taken over Buckbeak's appeal since Hermione is studying more subjects than anyone and has begun to look as tired as Professor Lupin. On top of all of his homework, Harry is busy with Quidditch practice and the added burden of capturing the golden snitch that could win Gryffindor the House Cup. Harry is more driven than ever before to win because the rivalry between him and Malfoy has never been bigger, especially after the incident with Buckbeak. Harry spends the time leading up to the match surrounded by people to ensure no Slytherins have the opportunity to take him out, and is constantly worried about his firebolt. The energy in the Gryffindor common room the night before the match is charged, and when Harry finally goes to bed, he has awful dreams and sleeps terribly. He wakes up and has a cup of water, and while looking out his window, he sees Crookshanks, who's met by a large, shaggy black dog, and the two disappear before Harry can show Ron. The next morning, in the Great Hall, the Gryffindors are joined in their fervor to beat Slytherin by both Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw before the team hurries off to prepare for the match. With three quarters of the crowd cheering for Gryffindor, the match begins. Slytherin plays dirty, and Gryffindor goes up 30-0 to zero from penalties, resulting in even more foul plays from Slytherin. Harry keeps an eye on the score, waiting to be more than 50 points ahead, and tries to keep an eye for the snitch without giving anything away, since Malfoy is trailing him closely. Wood is hit by two bludgers, earning Gryffindor another 10-point penalty, which is followed by Alicia scoring again to put Gryffindor up 70-10. to 10. Harry sights the snitch above him, and as he tries to reach out, he begins to slow, because Malfoy is holding onto the firebolt long enough for the snitch to disappear again, but also earning Gryffindor another penalty. Angelina Johnson regains the quaffle, and every Slytherin but Malfoy flies towards her, when Harry notices and zooms through their ranks to allow Angelina to score, but his efforts allow Malfoy to sight and go after the snitch. Harry manages to urge his firebolt forward and past Malfoy to catch the golden snitch and secure the Quidditch Cup for Gryffindor for the first time in seven years. The crowd rushes the field and hoists the team up. Hagrid can't wait to tell Buckbeak. Professor McGonagall is crying. Ron and Hermione are beaming with pride, and Harry imagines that if a Dementor were there, he could produce the best Patronus in the world. The movie section starts out with Professor Tulani's voice over the end of the previous scene with Professor Lupin. It cuts to a crystal ball as she talks about the art of crystal gazing. The camera zooms out, showing a bored Harry and a sleeping Ron, 
who is startled awake as Trelawney approaches their table and asks what they have there. Appearing from nowhere, Hermione asks if she can try. Without even looking at the crystal ball, she says, The Grim. Possibly. Trelawney takes her hand and tells her that from the moment she stepped foot in her class, she sensed that she didn't possess the proper spirit for the noble art of divination. She calls her young in years, but says that her heart is as shriveled as an old maid's, and her soul is as dry as the pages of the books to which she so desperately cleaves. She pats her hand and Hermione pulls it away from her, before standing up, knocking the crystal ball off the table, and walking out of the room. The camera follows her out and shows the crystal ball rolling out the door as well. It cuts back to Trelawney, who wonders if she said something. We have once again hit a chapter of Prisoner of Azkaban that basically doesn't happen in the movie. Yeah? The most important aspects of the plot do make it in, and that's how we were able to line up what we did as the corresponding film scenes. Well, scene, really. Yeah, one of the biggest reasons this chapter is underrepresented in the movie is because it's another Quidditch chapter. And as we've mentioned before, the movie all but completely omitted Quidditch. Much to Quincy's chagrin, which he has made well known. (laughs) But I do understand why he's not happy with that, especially considering the loss of Lee Jordan's commentary and McGonagall's sass. Oh, yeah. Right. And we will definitely be talking about that more this episode. The book chapter starts out where we left off last week, with Hermione sharing the letter she received from Hagrid. It was covered in Hagrid's teardrops and difficult to read, but they were able to make out that they lost the case and he's allowed to bring Buckbeak back to Hogwarts until the execution date is set. This doesn't happen at this point in the movie, because we already have the scene with Hagrid at the lake crying about how Buckbeak has been sentenced to death. Right. But it does give us the trio's reaction to the news which the movie basically glossed over at this point. Mm -hmm. Harry says they can't do this, Buckbeak isn't dangerous. Hermione is sure that Nazi von Douchebag I frightened the committee into it because they're a bunch of doddery old fools and were scared. Doddery old fools is an amazing insult. Like, more people need to use this phrase, honestly. It's a good one. Right? We'll have to find a way to work it in at some point. Fact. But Hermione also says there will be an appeal, though she doesn't see how things will change. Ron insists that it will because he will help her do the research this time. Obviously, the movie couldn't show this because they never had Hermione help Hagrid with his defense in the first place. She was too busy dealing with the side effects of the castle's sass leak. Right? What a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) But in the book, she throws her arms around Ron's neck and bursts into tears. Ron looks quite terrified and just pats her awkwardly on the top of her head until she pulls away and tells him that she's really, really sorry about Scabbers. Ron says that he was old and a bit useless. Way to finally get over yourself, Ron. Jesus. I think it made a huge difference just to have Hermione apologize. Part of the reason he was upset was because she was acting like Scabbers wasn't even dead. Hmm. Which... We'll get to that. (laughs) But anyways, they really want to go talk to Hagrid. But because of the safety measures imposed after Black's second break-in, it was impossible for them to go see him in the evenings. Which technically wasn't the case in the movie, since they cut out the second break-in. Yeah, but they do get a chance to talk to him during their Care of Magical Creatures class, and he explained how he got all tongue-tied and kept dropping his notes. Then Lucia stood up and said his bit, and the committee did exactly what he told them to do. This is somewhat similar to what the movie had him say during the rock-skipping scene, except, once again, the movie made Hagrid out to be a kind of an idiot, with his, 
always cleans his feathers defense. Yeah, there's a really big difference between being super nervous, struggling to speak publicly, Mm -hmm. and actually just making a bad defense. Yeah. Ron tells Hagrid not to give up since there's still the appeal and they're working on it. Hagrid walks the class back to the castle and tells Ron there's no use and he's just going to make sure the rest of Beaky's time is the happiest he's ever had. He says he owes him that and breaks off crying. Ahead, Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle laugh about Hagrid crying as Malfoy makes fun of him for being pathetic. Ron and Harry are furious and move towards Malfoy, but Hermione gets there first and slaps him right across the face. Something very similar happens in the movie when Hermione punches Malfoy, but it's not until later on, so we'll talk more about that then. But I totally prefer the slap in the book over the punch in the movies. Like, just everything about it, from the satisfaction of the slap itself to the way the boys reacted, it was just better. I agree. Yeah. Especially about the boys' reactions. Mm -hmm. Because they are completely stunned by her. She actually raises her hand to smack him again and tells Nazi von Douchebag II not to call Hagrid pathetic. She calls him foul and evil, but Ron grabs her hand and she tells him to get off and pulls out her wand. Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle run off like the little bitches that they are. Yeah, then Ron just gives a stunned and impressed Hermione. Because, I mean, what else could he say at that point? Yeah, I know, I love it. <laughs> Hermione tells Harry that he better beat him in the Quidditch final because she just can't stand it if Slytherin wins. I mean, obviously this part couldn't happen in the movie since there was no Quidditch final. Sorry, Quincy. Ron points out that they're due in charms, and the three of them hurry to Flitwick's classroom. He tells the boys they're late, and they realize that Hermione is no longer with them. They're a little concerned and think she may have stopped at the bathroom, but even though she never shows up to class, their concern fades as they begin the lesson and learn about cheering charms. Which was our trivia question. I wish I could do a cheering charm. It would probably work wonders on a teething toddler. Shit, it would probably work wonders on an aggravated adult. Well, yeah, that's true too. (laughs) (laughs) Hermione also doesn't show up to lunch, and after the effects of the cheering charm wear off, they start to worry about her. They head back to their common rooms and find her asleep on her arithmetic book. She panics when she realizes she missed charms, and Ron tells her that she's cracking up trying to do too much. I'm actually more surprised that it took Hermione so long to get this overwhelmed. Homegirl is essentially living two days for every one day everyone else is living. Like, I would have cracked after day one and just started using the time turner to take naps. A time turner would be so useful to get all this podcast stuff done. Or take naps. But this is why I'm the Hermione of the two of us. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm the Ron. (laughs) I tend to overfill my plate too. Yeah. But Hermione runs off to talk to Flitwick and says she'll meet them at divination. And divination class is where the movie section actually starts. And ends, really. (laughs) (laughs) It's another example of getting the same information across, but in a slightly different way. Though the movie does stay fairly true to this part of the chapter. In the book, they get to divination and learn that they're going to start studying crystal balls. Ron said that he thought they weren't starting crystal balls until next term, and Harry says he's glad it means they're finished with palmistry because he was tired of Trelawney flinching every time she looked at his hand. The movie scene has Trelawney's voice heard over the tail end of the previous scene with Lupin, then cuts to a crystal ball, so that part stays true to the book. The camera zooms out and shows a bored Harry and a sleeping Ron at the table, and I am so Ron in this scene. I completely believe that about you. Facts! (laughs) 
The book has Professor Trelawney greet the class and tell them that the fates informed her that their examination in June will concern the orb, and she's eager to give them practice. Hermione snorts and says, Well, honestly, the fates have informed her. Who sets the exam? She does. What an amazing prediction. Apparently the sass leak has reached the book. <laughs> but I do wish they would have shown more scenes like the divination scene in the movie. It gives a much better idea of Hermione's issues with Trelawney that just 45 second scenes in the movie doesn't do. I agree. Plus, the camaraderie among Harry, Ron, and Hermione in this part of the chapter is just delightful. Delightful. Especially after they spent so much time not talking to one another. Mm-hmm. Because Ron and Harry choke back laughs at Hermione's sass. Then they begin crystal gazing, and Harry struggles to keep his mind blank because he keeps thinking, this is stupid. <laughs> That's me anytime I meditate. <laughs> and while Ron keeps breaking into silent giggles and Hermione keeps tutting. And if you're movie Ron, I'm a combination of all three of them in the book. <laughs> <laughs> and none of that happens in the movie, unfortunately. Partially because Hermione isn't even there yet. It's just bored Harry and sleeping Ron who is startled awake when Trelawney approaches their table and asks what they have there. Trelawney does approach their table in the book too, but it's because she asks the class if anyone needs help interpreting the shadowy portents within their orb, and Ron says he doesn't need help. Obviously, it means there's going to be loads of fog tonight. Harry and Hermione both burst out laughing, which scandalizes Lavender and Parvati and completely disrupts the class, or as Trelawney put it, the clairvoyant vibrations. She then approaches their table and peers into their crystal wall. This is when the movie veers off from how it happened in the book a little more. Because at this point, Hermione then appears out of nowhere, asks if she can try. And then without even looking at the crystal ball, she just says, The Grim. Possibly. And once again, not a big fan of the line delivery here. It's just blech. Yeah, I agree. It's weird. That's not how it happened in the book, and I prefer the book's version so much more. As we usually do. Yeah. Professor Trelawney says that she sees something moving in the crystal ball, but what is it? After building up a little bit of suspense, she begins to reveal that it's the gr- But Hermione cuts her off, and I think you're right about that sass leak, because she says, Oh, for goodness sake, not that ridiculous grim again. It's the sass leak, I'm telling you. So the gist of what happens is the same. Hermione mocks Trelawney for constantly predicting Harry's death, but the book is definitely better than the movie here. Yeah. And Trelawney's response in each is also similar, though ultimately different. In the book, she tells Hermione that she's sorry to say that from the moment she arrived in her class, it's been apparent that she does not have what the noble art of divination requires. She also calls her mind hopelessly mundane. In the movie, Trelawney calls her young in years, but says that her heart is as shriveled as an old maid's, and her soul is as dry as the pages of the books to which she so desperately cleaves. Say what you want about Trelawney, but that lady has some sass in her, too. It's gotta be that sass leak. Gotta be. Hermione's bitch face here, though, is quite impressive. Like, I'm pretty sure it could melt the face off a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> However, the way she knocks the crystal ball off the table is pretty weak sauce. That's not how it happened in the book. Hermione just gets up and says, Fine! She crams her book back in her bag and says, she gives up, she's leaving. Then she kicks open the trap door, climbs down the ladder, and leaves. Lavender and Parvati are both deeply impressed because Professor Trelawney had previously predicted that around Easter, 
one of our number will leave us forever. I really wish we could have seen the way Lavender and Parvati were Trelawney's like fangirls. That would have been really fun. You know? But in the movie, since the divination classroom didn't have a trapdoor or a ladder, we just see Hermione walk out the door as the crystal ball rolls away too. Trelawney looks around and says, Have I said something? And it's just so classic Trelawney. Like, she doesn't even realize the second degree burn she laid on Hermione at all. And I love it. It's great. But this is where the movie scene ends. The book chapter goes on for quite a bit more. Quite a bit. Ron is awed at the day Hermione has been having, and Harry is nervous that Trelawney really did see the Grimm, especially with the Quidditch final drawing nearer. Well, the last thing he needs is another near-fatal accident. Which is basically his, what are we on now, sixth greatest talent? It's something like that. I'm, I've lost count, right? in all honesty. The boy's very talented. Talented kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Skill. But the Easter holidays are nowhere near relaxing because they've had so much homework. Neville is near a breakdown and definitely isn't the only one. However, no one has as much work to do as Hermione, who is looking exhausted and constantly close to tears. We mentioned before that the movie never showed the side of Hermione. It focused on the mystery of how she was appearing in her classes from apparently nowhere, rather than the mystery of how she was taking so many classes at once to begin with. Yeah, but she has so much work to do that Ron has taken over the responsibility of Buckbeak's appeal. Which I love that he does that. Like, it really shows some personal growth on Ron's part. I think so, too. Mm -hmm. Especially since he just lost his own pet, he must be really empathizing with Hagrid over possibly losing Buckbeak. Yeah. But it also makes sense that Ron was in charge and not Harry, because Harry also had Quidditch to train for, and Olive Herwood was constantly reminding Harry that they were behind Slytherin by exactly 200 points. So Harry can only catch the snitch if they are up by more than 50. Like, constantly reminding him, to the point that Harry cuts him off and yells, I know, Oliver! (laughs) Yet again, we miss out on Oliver Wood and his crazy fanatical ways. But I wish we could have seen Harry snap at Wood in the movie. It would have been so great. I know. (laughs) And it's not just Oliver Wood who's obsessed this time. It's everyone in Gryffindor. They haven't won the Quidditch Cup since Charlie Weasley had been Seeger. And Harry desperately wants to win, partially because of how much he just wants to broomstick it to Malfoy. (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) Okay. I will say, I do love the crowd at sports ball matches when the stakes are really high. Like, there's an electricity in the air at events like that where you just can't help but kind of get into the hype. Yeah. As much as I don't give a shit about sports ball... I love the crowds. Yeah. I just do. But then on the other end of things, the tension between Gryffindor and Slytherin is so high that scuffles keep breaking out between the two houses. And Harry is having a really rough time with it, because everywhere he goes, the Slytherins try to trip him. So Olive Herwood says that he shouldn't go anywhere alone, and basically all of Gryffindor starts escorting him to classes. (laughs) Harry was even more concerned about the firebolt safety, keeping it locked in his trunk and frequently running back to his dorm to check and make sure it was still there. Yeah, if I had a broom worth hundreds of galleons, I'd be nervous about it getting jacked too. That's why I don't really want, like, a super nice car. It's too much pressure. I'll take my decent mid-sized sedan over a Ferrari any day. I wonder if wizards can insure their broomsticks. I'm sure there's some way. But... The night before the match, even Hermione can't concentrate, and the Gryffindor common room is basically a madhouse. Harry's relieved when Oliver Wood sends them to bed, 
but then he sleeps badly, dreaming that he missed the match and they had to play with Neville instead. Oh my god, the idea of Neville being the Gryffindor Seeker is hilarious if you just let it play out in your head. I kind of imagine that it would be just like his first flying lesson, but, you know, longer. I don't know, if he falls off his broom again, it might not last very long at all. True. (laughs) I personally get a kick out of Harry's other nightmare, which was that the Slytherins showed up flying dragons instead of brooms. Imagine that Quidditch match. Is Neville still the Seeker? Because that makes it so much better. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's... I feel like the Quidditch field isn't big enough for all those dragons. (laughs) That's all I'm thinking about. I'm just thinking about, like, there wouldn't be any room for them to fly, so they'd all just be sitting there. So really, Harry <laughs> would actually have... a pretty big have... pitch, though. Yeah, but, I mean, dragons are fucking huge. Not necessarily. Depends on the dragon. I guess so. I'm just imagining rather large dragons in a rather small Quidditch pitch. And it's <laughs> even better, because then Harry definitely has a leg up. Because he just has a tiny little broom. So he can, like, fly places that the dragons can't. But this is also kind of fun foreshadowing. True. That is very true. Yeah. So Harry facing a dragon on his broom. Dun, dun, dun. But Harry awakes with a start and calms when he remembers that the match hasn't taken place yet and that the Slytherins certainly won't be riding dragons. He goes to pour himself some water from the jug by the window and sees an animal prowling the grounds. He's worried it's the Grim, but then realizes it's actually Crookshanks. However, Crookshanks meets up with a large, shaggy black dog, and Harry tries to wake up Ron to show him. And Ron wakes up saying that spiders want him to tap dance. Oh, wait, no, that's a different part of the movie and doesn't apply here at all. Never mind. Sorry, (laughs) my bad. But the sentiment kind of works because Ron doesn't really wake up as he asks Harry what he's on about and then immediately falls back asleep. The next day, Harry and the Gryffindor team enter the Great Hall to enormous applause. Even the Hufflepuffs and Ravenclaws are rooting for Gryffindor. The Slytherins, however, hiss at them as they pass. Slytherins hissing as Harry passes is just so... Oh, how do I put this? It's so Slytherin. Like, almost annoyingly Slytherin. Not almost. It's definitely annoyingly Slytherin. <laughs> and childish. Yeah. I gotta say. As they leave the Great Hall to get ready for the match, Cho tells Harry good luck, and he blushes and says, Cho Chang! He does not do that. <laughs> That's my headcanon. Yeah. <laughs> The weather is good, but the team is basically all too nervous to speak as they change into their robes. Once the match starts, Lee Jordan kicks off the commentary, and this is my favorite Lee Jordan commentary of the whole series. Lee Jordan's commentary would be enough of a reason for me to attend a Quidditch match. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He starts off by mentioning that the Slytherin team made a lineup change and seemed to be going more for size than skill. Burn. Right. <laughs> then, as the match gets well underway, it becomes extremely clear that the Slytherins are playing dirty, and Lee is having a hard time keeping his commentary unbiased. At one point, he announces a score saying, 30-0, take that, you dirty cheating, and McGonagall has to yell at him. <laughs> I love it so much. His interactions with Professor McGonagall during this are amazing. This is the part of Quidditch that I really wish wasn't cut from the movie. I don't care as much about the sports ball, but I love Lee's commentary. Right? 
At another point, Harry had two Slytherins barreling towards him from opposite directions, and he pulled upward at the last second, causing them to crash, and Lee to laugh and say they'll need to get up earlier than that to beat a firebolt. <laughs> then Angelina has the quaffle, and Flint gets alongside her, so he tells her to poke him in the eye, and then immediately has to tell McGonagall that it was a joke. Ah, love him! But then Flint ends up getting the quaffle and scoring, and Lee swears so badly that McGonagall tries to take the magical megaphone away from him. The fact that Lee gets in trouble for swearing just makes me love him even more. I'm not even going to lie. It's fantastic, but mm -hmm. it's still not my favorite part. <laughs> the match continues, and it's the dirtiest game Harry has ever played. The Slytherins would literally do anything to get the quaffle, and with all the penalties Gryffindor has been given, they were up 70 to 10. Which was more than 50 points up. Yup. And Harry sees the snitch and accelerates towards it. And then all of a sudden, his firebolt starts slowing down because Malfoy had grabbed the broom's tail and was pulling it back. Madame Hooch is awarding Gryffindor another penalty and screeching that she's never seen such tactics. Because Hooch is crazy. Hooch is crazy. <laughs> and then, my favorite part. Lee Jordan is screaming, you cheating scum, you filthy cheating bee, and dancing out of Professor McGonagall's reach. But the kicker is that he doesn't even need to because she was shaking her finger in Malfoy's direction and shouting so furiously that her hat had fallen off. <laughs> it's the best. I love it so, so, so ah. much. Oh, <sighs> it would have been so nice to have it in the movie. I know. Sad panda. Single tear. Alicia takes the penalty but misses, and then the Slytherins manage to score again, making it 70 to 20. But then Angelina scores, and Gryffindor is now up by 60 points, so Harry just needs to catch the snitch and they can win. To his horror, Malfoy has seen it and is already diving towards it. Harry urges the firebolt to go faster and manages to catch up to him. He takes both hands off his broom, leans forward, knocks Malfoy's hands out of the way, and catches the fucking snitch. Gryffindor wins! As much as I don't like sports ball, the description of Gryffindor winning the Quidditch Cup really actually gave me some feels. Like, lots of the feels. Even if it is a little ridiculous, I had all the feels. I'm actually just going to read because it is so good. Mm -hmm. Wave upon wave of Crimson supporters was pouring over the barriers onto the field. Hands were raining down on their backs. Harry had a confused impression of noise and bodies pressing in on him. Then he and the rest of the team were hoisted onto the shoulders of the crowd. Thrust into the light, he saw Hagrid, plastered with crimson rosettes. You beat him, Harry, you beat him! Wait till I tell Buckbeak. There was Percy, jumping up and down like a maniac, all dignity forgotten. Professor McGonagall was sobbing harder than wood, wiping her eyes with an enormous Gryffindor flag. And there, fighting their way towards Harry, were Ron and Hermione. Words failed them. They simply beamed as Harry was borne towards the stands, where Dumbledore stood waiting with the enormous Quidditch cup. If there had been a Dementor around, as the sobbing wood passed Harry the cup, as he lifted it into the air, Harry felt he could have produced the world's best Patronus. All the feels! It's so many feels. so great. Oh my gosh. I'm really sad we didn't get to see this moment in the movie. Yeah. But this does bring us to the end of our compare and contrast section. As there wasn't really much of a movie scene, there again aren't any actors. So this will instead bring us to our Potter pondering. What are your thoughts on why they may have decided to leave out Quidditch the way they did? Find the post on our Facebook page and share your thoughts. We look forward to reading them. 
This will bring us to our sorting hat story, which is from Jeffrey Hillen. He writes, I am a Slytherin, and I'm not sure what my wand is, though I do have one. My Patronus is a little embarrassing. It's a swan. I'm not really proud of it, but it is what it is. I was seven when the first film came in cinema. At that point, I didn't like reading at all. Never finished a book, but I loved the films. I had seen Toy Story 2 already in cinema, and my father told me, it must have been November or December 2001, that there was a new film in cinema that he thought I might like. So we went and saw Philosopher's Stone, and it was absolutely fantastic. It was such a magical experience. I clearly remember seeing the Hogwarts castle for the first time on the big screen. Really fell in love with Harry's world from that moment. I liked the character of Harry from very, very early, but seeing that castle on such a huge screen with the music made an everlasting impression on me that I will never forget. A few weeks later, I bought the book and was obsessed with Harry Potter. I don't think you should be embarrassed by your Patronus. Swans are totally badass. Their wings are like baseball bats. Mm-hmm. That is true. They can kick some ass. They can kick some serious ass. Facts. But thank you for sharing your sorting hat story with us, Jeffrey. Yeah, thank you. And if any of you other keepers out there listening would like us to read your sorting hat story on a future episode, you can email it to us at justkeeprolling at gmail.com. Let us know your house, your wand, Patronus, how you got into Harry Potter, and anything else you might want to share with us. You can also just message us on social media. And this will bring us to this week's trivia question, which is, what book of Hermione's does Ron say he borrowed for a bit of bedtime reading? The prize for the first one who responds with a correct answer in the code word, hashtag snorytime, will get a sticker. Another way to get a sticker is to rate and review us through iTunes. If you don't have an Apple account, you can write a recommendation on our Facebook page. Then email us at justkeeprolling at gmail.com to let us know you did, and we will get back to you to figure out which sticker you want and where to send it. Don't forget to find us and follow us on Facebook at JKR Podcast and Twitter and Instagram at Just Keep Rolling. Following us on Podbean at justkeeprolling.podbean.com will get you the episode as early as possible and give you a leg up in answering the trivia question. If you would like to support us as a patron for extra perks, you can go to patreon.com slash justkeeprolling. In addition to getting you some extra perks, like listening in the episode or Just Keep Rolling swag, patron-only Facebook groups, virtual meetups, bonus content, and more, your patronage also helps us continue producing this podcast, our cooking show, and bringing more content your way. And as always, any support you can give is greatly appreciated. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We post our weekly podcast episodes, cooking show episodes, monthly blooper reels, vlogs, and other random videos. And join us next week when we talk about Chapter 16, Professor Trelawney's prediction, and the somewhat corresponding film scenes. Thanks for listening. We hope you hear us again. I'm Katie. I'm Ellen. Until the next time, just keep rolling. rolling.